1991, I was going to Rome uh, and uh, it was on a, a trip I was doing to Europe. But uh, I, at that time, on the Saturday morning, I'd go and watch my, our son play cricket and football. And there was another father at that time who was a very prominent Roman Catholic layman in Sydney who he would watch his son in the same teams as our son. And when he heard that I was going to Rome, he said, would you like me to get you an audience with the Pope? The Pope was John Paul II. And I said, oh, that would be very nice. Uh, it would look good in the Bible College Bulletin to see a photo of me with the Pope. And so he got me an audience with the Pope. And this was in July 1991. And I turned up on the Thursday morning for my audience at St Peter's, the Vatican, and there were 7,000 other people there for their audience as well, so it was all a big audience. However, I had a very special seat. Uh, in this large hall, which contained 7,000 people, there was a reparto speciale, that's what the ticket said, and there were people who sat on the end of the aisle, and when the Pope gave his address, he was to come down the aisle, and the people on this side, on the seat on the aisle, would each have an occasion to say something to the Pope, and then for him to shake hands, and then to have a very brief photo before he moved on to the next aisle. So I knew that I had an opportunity to say a very brief message to the Pope. So I got my message ready. I got three words ready. I'd been in Rome a week. And I had three words to say. Now, as it turned out, the Pope didn't come down the aisle because at that time there were many Soviet Christians who'd just come. The Soviet Union had just collapsed and he spent all his time up the front, so I never got the photo and I never got to say these to him. But this is what I would have said if I'd have had the opportunity. Rome needs Romans. Rome needs Romans. Kuala Lumpur needs Romans. Sydney needs Romans, you need Romans, I need Romans, we all need Romans. If you've got your Bible open there, look at the top of the second column on page 939. It says at verse 18, for the wrath of God. Now I remember being invited by a church in New South Wales to come and for one week move through Romans and do a chapter a night. And at the end of the first night, I'd done Romans 1, the pastor said to some people in the congregation that he wasn't coming back because I was presenting, a, this was his word, a sub-Christian view of God. Why? Because I talked about the wrath of God. The people increasingly came, but their pastor did not. He was out of theological kilter with them. Now, that is typical, is it not? That if you talk about the wrath of God, which the Apostle Paul does... And if you show that there is only one way into relationship with God through the work of his son, that is exclusive and it is deeply humbling because it has nothing to do with my goodness and it has nothing to do with my religiosity. Now, I put it to you that that gospel is deeply unpopular in the world. And what is deeply unpopular in the world may become deeply unpopular in the church. That is that there is only one way, there is only one gospel, and we make no contribution to that by our goodness or by our religious deeds. Deeply unpopular and unaccepted in the world, 
and the potential to be deeply unpopular in the church. Now, in the history of the church, when the church has inched away from that gospel, it is Romans, time and again, which has come to the rescue to bring the church back to the true gospel. So that one commentator, Frederick Godet, the Swiss commentator, said, in my study of the history of revivals, every revival has been linked as cause and effect with a better understanding of the truths of Romans. So when I was asked today, should you read Romans to a new believer? Yes. But I think the church needs lashings of Romans. So I sit on a pastoral staff and I suggested last year that we do Romans. And they said, oh, we did Romans five years ago. Well, so what? We did it five years ago. I think there is evidence around us that we do not understand Romans and we do not trust the authentic gospel of Romans. And it's all there. You know that Roman Catholic dogma basically says you trust in what Jesus has done and you trust in what you do. You fulfil your religious rights, you blend the two together and you trust in that. But you cannot be sure, assurance is presumption because you cannot be sure that you do your part well and therefore assurance is sin. And there's no gospel in that. And therefore the gospel says, you trust in Jesus, now you keep the Ten Commandments. You trust in yourself. I enter by faith in Christ, but I continue by faith in me. There is no gospel in that. And so we come today to Romans. And I just want you to notice, and I've always been taught this ever since I was at college, read the first and the last. Look at the first section of Romans there. So my job is to talk and be slow and clear, hopefully, so you understand the accent. Your job is to have nimble fingers and turn the page as well. Look at chapter 1, verses 1 to 7, and it's all about the gospel. Now flip over to the last words of Romans, chapter 16, and uh, the last paragraph, verse 25 to 27. And what is it about? It is about the gospel. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. So Romans is ultimately about the gospel. Well, it's also about Paul's missionary endeavours, that's true. And it's also about the unity of the weak and strong brother. But that's not what drives Romans. What drives Romans? Those two things are important, mission and unity. But what drives Romans is the gospel. And I think it's because when Paul wrote Romans, he writes Romans about five or six years after he has written the letter to the Galatians. And he knows that in the Galatian church, Jewish believers had come trying to impose an addition, an an added extra that the Gentiles needed to have, circumcision. And Paul, therefore, wants to get the Romans ready for an equal assault. They must understand the nature of the true gospel. And so Romans is his clearest, longest exposition, explanation of the gospel of God. Well, let's dive in. Paul, his name means little or small. So it's not a great start, is it? This is little or small writing to you. A servant, and if you look at the footnote, it could be slave. A slave had no rights. A slave, the death of a slave, no inquest. If your slave died, there was no investigation. A slave's family was not recognised. You could buy a husband at the slave market and someone else could buy the wife and someone else could buy the children and they'd never see each other again. To be a slave, therefore, was terrible in the abstract, but to be the slave, notice, of Christ Jesus, 
I am the slave belonging to Christ Jesus, Paul says. And then he says, called to be an apostle. What is an apostle? Apostle is a called one. And so Paul is saying, I'm called to be a called one. He's emphasizing, therefore, that his calling comes from God. You see, because there may well have been people who say, well, Paul's not a real apostle and therefore his gospel is not a real gospel. He says he's a called apostle. If you look down to verse 5, you'll see that he's received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. So this is by grace. He doesn't deserve it. This is God's calling to Paul to be a called one who's going to take the message out. And notice he says it's set apart for the gospel of God. Set apart really is a shepherding term. It described the fence that the shepherd would put around his best male lamb. And that one is going to be preserved for breeding purposes. And Paul says that he's been set apart. He's been fenced off, notice, for the gospel of God. And the word he uses for gospel is not the word that we would translate in the first century good news. The gospel is momentous news. The gospel is big news. That's the issue. You remember when Neil Armstrong said, one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind? Well, lots of you don't remember that. You weren't on the planet. Do you remember on the September the 11th when that plane ploughed into the World Trade Center? I remember when my father told me that they just killed the President of the United States, John Fitzgerald Kennedy. I remember when my mother came into my bedroom to tell me that the king was dead and we're about to have a queen. Now, that's really good. Do you remember that? Some of you might remember that. It's a long time ago. But those are big events. Those are momentous events. And that's gospel. Big. Not necessarily big and good, but just big. That's the issue. And this gospel, Paul takes this gospel, look at what he says, verse 1. It is of God. It is God's. He owns it. It's not mine. It's not yours. We've got no right to edit it. Scratch that bit out. We don't like that. But this is the momentous news that has its source in God and therefore is powerful. It has the power of God. Okay, now you say, boy, this is the first verse. Man, you better get going. We will get going, let me assure you. But it's great to look at the opening, isn't it? Uh, so, So let's look at the opening again. It's terrific. We've all got the same version here. Little Paul a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be a called one, fenced off, separated, for the momentous news which belongs to God. Now that's what I'm writing to you about. That's what he's saying. And now, look, he describes it. Look at verse 2. He says that it was promised beforehand in the Holy Scriptures. So the Old Testament is anticipating it. And then he says in verse 3, it's concerning his son. So this gospel, if I'm talking about God, I'm not preaching the gospel. I need to be talking about Jesus. Now, we noticed that uh, when we were down at Kuching. We were staying in a hotel and we were having breakfast and there was a Christian song being played over the music. But it was so indefinite that um, any Muslim could have said, yeah, that's Allah, because it's not definite. You see, here Paul's saying, I don't bring a message about some waffly idea of God. This gospel message, this momentous message of God concerns his son. 
And later on, you can just take a reference down there to Galatians chapter 1, verse 16. Don't look at it now, but later have a look. There's the shortest definition of the gospel in the New Testament, where Paul says, we went about preaching him, H-I-M. We preached him. That's the gospel. And notice here, Paul is saying in verse 3, this gospel concerns his son as to his humanity. He was of the royal line of David. So after the flesh, Jesus was a real human being of the royal line of David. But more than that, for the gospel is about Jesus, his humanity, but he's now described in verse 4 from the standpoint of his resurrection, who was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. And so Paul says, I'm talking about Jesus Christ, our Lord. There's his full title. That's what the gospel's about. It's about Jesus the Christ, who is our Lord. He has been designated Lord by the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. The spirit who raised him from the dead designated Jesus as divine. And he is also the perfect man of the royal line of David. So this gospel concerns his humanity and his deity. This gospel concerns the fact that he is the one who bridges the gap between God and people. Now that's what the gospel's about. And it's a wonderful description, isn't it, to open it up. I need this constant reminder. The gospel is not mine. The gospel is not primarily about me. The gospel is not primarily about my response. The gospel is God's and it is about his son, his real humanity and his real deity. Now, I just want you to notice here also that Paul uses this holy designation three times. Verse 2, the, the Holy Scriptures point forward to this. The spirit, verse 4, of holiness uh, uh, declares Jesus, son of God, by his resurrection from the dead. And verse 7, that these are the holy ones declared to be saints. So it's always good when I go to my gym, which I used to go to a gym, which was just a, a very small room, but all full of Roman Catholics. And recently a Roman Catholic nun was made a saint by Rome to say to my good friends at the gym, well, there is no such thing as a saint in the New Testament. It's always saints together. And we are all saints. So the centurions and the shoemakers and the, the traders of Rome who are loved by God uh, are called to be saints. And that's what the gospel does. It gives us our identity and uh, the spirit of holiness and the holy scriptures whom the spirit of holiness breathed out points forward to the Lord Jesus. Well, that is our opening paragraph. It's, that's what this letter is all about. And Paul then comes, if you look down to verse 14, and he comes to the first of what are called his three I am statements. You remember that Jesus, of course, uttered the I am statements with all their divine significance in John's gospel, seven I am statements. But look at the first of Paul's, verse 14. I am under obligation. I am literally indebted both to Greeks and to barbarians, that is, to all races of people, and to the wise and the foolish, that is, to all classes of all races of people. So with this gospel, Paul is under obligation to God to share this gospel with everyone, and this gospel is for everyone. 
And the second I am statement is a very word, uh, rare word that he uses in the New Testament. That is why I am single-mindedly determined. The word is eager, translated there. That is why I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are at Rome. Why? Because there are Greeks and barbarians at Rome. There are wise and foolish at Rome. And Paul knows that by preaching this gospel, which is God's gospel, which is God's power, that people will come to salvation. And the third I am is in verse 16. For I am not ashamed of this gospel, this momentous news. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation. So it's purposeful power. It is the power, it is the instrument which God's spirit uses to bring people to salvation. For everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And Paul earlier called about the obedience that comes from faith. So this gospel calls us to faith. It calls us to believe it calls us to believe in Jesus, and uh, it is the power that gives us uh, this gift of saving faith in the Lord Jesus, and so it brings us to salvation for everyone, and the priority is that the Jew should hear it first and also the Greek. And then Paul goes on in verse 17, notice, and he gives us the great theme verse of Romans. The great theme verse is righteousness. That is how we can be in the right, for in it, for in this gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. It's a revelation. We could not have discovered this ourselves. And this righteousness comes from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So here is our dilemma. I am unrighteous. God is righteous. How can the unrighteous come into a righteous relationship with the righteous God in a righteous way? And that is what Romans is about. Righteous, righteous, righteous. Righteous is a noun. The verbal form of the noun is justify. So when God declares righteous, that is the verb justify. But the noun is righteous. I am unrighteous. I am short of God's standard. How then can I be in a right relationship with him? Now then, Paul stops there. That is his introduction. Look at chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. He's introduced his gospel, he's introduced himself, he's introduced his readers, that is, the Romans, the saints. He's shown that the gospel give each, gives each their identity and the gospel gives you your identity. He shows us that this gospel is all about righteousness. He is not ashamed of it. He is absolutely determined to share this gospel with every class of people in every race of people. Now, this gospel, therefore, is of vital significance, unpopular, deeply hated in the world. And it is this gospel which is in danger of being deeply hated in the church. And so we need to hear Romans again and again. Now, let's come to the second section. In the second section, you can draw a bracket around verse, from verse 18 to chapter 3, verse 20. Everything Paul is about to say is really a setting for the wondrousness of the gospel. 
And so you'll find, I've always found whenever I preach through Romans and we get into chapter 118 and we go through to chapter 3 verse 20 and it takes about four or five weeks Sunday by Sunday, by the end of it people are saying, have you got anything good to say? Is there anything positive here? No. Paul is showing you will not understand how wonderful it is to be in a right relationship with God until you understand your total and absolute dilemma that I cannot do anything. I am absolutely worthless. I cannot do that which I'm created for. And what I love about this section is that here is a realistic uh, picture of humanity. And that is precisely what we do not find in our day and age. Look, I tell you, all the radio commentators in Sydney, they cannot explain to you ISIS. Such wickedness. And yet the secularist commentators in Sydney believe that humankind is good and getting better. We're always overly optimistic about the human condition. Why are these people so wicked? I cannot understand it. Because we're becoming far more cultured and far more sophisticated. And yet look at it. They they have not got any explanation. And so it's the same with communism, isn't it? Communism is a brilliant economic theory if the world was full of selfless people. But none of us are selfless. We're all selfish and greedy. And if you doubt that you're selfish and greedy, just take your pulse and if it's beating, you are selfish and greedy in your natural sense. Sorry to say that, but that's the truth. And the head of the communists in the Soviet Union, Khrushchev said communism's failure is its failure to produce the selfless man. Communism is perfect if we're selfless, but we're not. Now, what does the Bible say about the human condition? Well, look at it in verse 18. It says our biggest problem is the wrath of God, and wrath simply means an oppressive weight. The wrath of God is being revealed against two things. One, ungodliness, that is we have no regard for God, and unrighteousness, probably that we have no regard for one another. And notice this ungodliness and righteousness. So you would expect if God is righteous, then he has got to be a God of wrath because he is going to move against these two things. Now, people, Paul says, are without excuse. For if you look in verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Therefore, people should have looked at the created order and found two things. Not a complete revelation of God, but verse 20, they should have seen his eternal power and his deity. And so people are without excuse to descend into ungodliness and unrighteousness, notice there. And what they should have done is given him thanks So verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him. Now the proper response, therefore, to the revelation of God in the created order is to honour the God who is divine and powerful and to give him thanks. But they didn't. And verse 23 tells you the exchange they made. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals and reptiles. And look at verse 25, there's the same expression. They exchange the truth about God for a lie, and it literally is the lie, 
and worshipped and served the created rather than the creator who is forever blessed. Amen. Now, isn't that an incredible thing? The Apostle Paul is saying that at the heart of humankind is idolatry. We have turned away from the revelation of God and the created order, and this is the great lie, the great exchange we have made. We've turned our back on the creator, and rather we have worshipped the created. Now, I want you to know that, because Paul says that is at the heart of the human dilemma. And three things follow from that. Look at them, verse 24, therefore God gave them over. Verse 26, therefore God gave them over. Verse 28, God gave them up. Now, do you you notice that Paul, it's as though he's being a wonderful physician and he is judged logically telling us why people are the way they are. And he is telling us that people are the way they are because it's the fruit of idolatry. Verse 24, God gave them up, I think there, to general uncleanness. Verse 26, God gave them up to dishonourable passions. The women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. That's fairly specific, isn't it? What is this due penalty for their error? Error? Basically that they have this passionate desire which will never be satisfied. It is is that lifestyle which we allow ourselves to, to perversely refer to as gay. It is the very opposite of gay, is it not? It is this extensive desire and God's given them up as a judgment to that. But don't don't let's get hooked on that. Look at what what he says more. But he says that God gave them up, this is the fruit of idolatry, to a debased mind, verse 28, to do what ought not to be done. So they're filled with unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, and good for family devotions. They're disobedient to their parents as well. So you don't say all those wicked people in verse 26, all those unclean people in verse 24. No, Paul says. The judgment of God is being revealed from heaven against all the idolatrous of people. And it may well be that verse 26 doesn't apply to you, but verse 28 somewhere does. And maybe verse 24 does as well. And it may well be that verse 26 does. And that is a tendency that you've got. It's great that you're here today. But if that's the case, make yourself accountable to someone. So we're all under notice this wrath of God, look at verse 18, which is revealed from heaven. It's being revealed all around us. And why is it? It is because of our idolatry. They know, verse 32, that God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. So they've got this sense that what they're doing is wrong. They know it in their heart. But their response is to keep doing it and encourage as many others to do it as well. Now, I I simply want you to notice at this point, this is God's judgment. Paul is not providing yet for the solution. So let's not run to a solution. You're not going to get to a solution because we're in the bracket here. Paul is just showing how we are under the wrath of God and we are under the wrath of God because we've turned to idolatry. 
And that's our big problem. So what is my biggest problem? My biggest problem is theological. So therefore, our commentators in Australia say, oh, we can solve that if we turn to a better education system, or we can solve that if we turn to a better, legisla better legislative, better laws. Paul says the heart of our problem is theological. And therefore, if you've got an infection which is theological, the antibiotic must be theological that's going to solve that infection. But as I say, Paul is not going to the antibiotic yet. Look at chapter 2 over the page, page 940. Therefore, Paul goes on, and he's always anticipating, Paul is always anticipating those who are silently arguing with him. Do I hear, O man, that you might say, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very things that, you, that you're condemning? We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Paul has got the moralist in view. You look back at chapter 1 and you think, oh, those dreadful people in chapter 1. I would never do that. And Paul says, you pass judgment on them. But none of you have the right to moral superiority because you do exactly the same things. And this passing of judgment, look at verse 4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and his patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You think that by passing judgment on those awfully wicked people and God's being patient with you, oh, well, that's God's approval of your morality and your lifestyle. Do you not see that God is being patient and kind to you in order that you should repent? But I put it to you, if you ever go to the self-righteous moralist and say, you need to repent, <laughs> they'll be terribly offended, won't they? What do I need to repent about? I've got nothing to repent about. But God's purpose is to lead you to repentance. Look at verse 5. But because of your hard, and the Greek word is sclerosis, because of the hardening of your arteries, because you are stubbornly impenitent, the reality is that you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So you can see, can't you, friends, that if I'm coming to church to hear Romans, those first, those week two, three, four, five, when I go through this, oh, strike. It's pretty morbid, isn't it? It's just confronting. And Paul's taking away every plank, every plank of the foundation that I think that I can make myself right with God. I'm moral enough that I can be morally superior. And you can't. And he says, look at verse 6, he will render to each one according to his works. See, there's your problem. God is going to personally judge each one and the idea, everyone. And he's not going to be fooled. He'll judge you on the basis of works and you're all going to be short. He's not going to judge you on the basis of your moral preference. He's not going to base you, uh, judge you on the basis of your moral judgments of others. He'll judge you on the basis of what you said, you did, you thought. For, look at verse 11, God shows no partiality. There's no favouritism here. This is the biggest problem we have. I am unrighteous and I will stand before a searching righteousness of God in judgment and I have nothing to commend me. 
Well, verse 12, let me take another category, the Apostle Paul says. Do I hear someone say, for all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law? God can't judge me according to a standard which I did not have. That's not fair. And so if I'm an unreached person, well, then he can't judge me according to the law of Moses because I never had it. And he can't judge me according to Jesus because I never heard of him. And so on this basis, people say, well, the unreached are better left unreached. Because at least if they've never had the opportunity to hear of Jesus and reject Jesus, then they won't be judged for that. And so Paul anticipates this. And look at what he says in verses 15 and 16. These people show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience bears witness and their conflicting thoughts both accuse or even excuse them. And I'm talking about this will happen on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men's hearts by Jesus Christ. So the unreached will have a conscience which excuses. Oh, I did do the right, and I now realise that that was consistent with the purposes of Almighty God who is judging me. Oh, my conscience accuses me because I did do the wrong. And I realise that I acted in a wrong way according to even my standard. And I'm going to have to answer to the God of all ages for that. And Paul says, don't leave the unreached unreached, therefore, because they are going to have on judgment day an accusing conscience as well as an excusing one but they will be accused on the basis of their own performance of their own standards. Now Paul looks in verse 17 and he goes right for the heart of the Jew. He may have been referring to the superior moral judgment of the Jew earlier, but he now calls him by name. But if you call yourself a Jew, which means God's praise, and rely on the law, and boast in God. What does Paul say? He says in verse 19, you call yourself a guide to the blind, a light in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, etc. You make all of these claims, but you do not live consistently with them. In fact, verse 24, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Well, if this God has a people like that, I don't want to know him because they're such two-faced, double-standard hypocrites. Morally superior, but you do not live according to your own moral judgments. And and then notice what happens next, because Paul's anticipating the question. Well, the Jew might say, well, I'm circumcised according to the old covenant, and you can't take that away from me. And look at what Paul says, verse 27. He who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law, will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but you break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, no, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit. Your outward circumcision means nothing because you live inconsistently and disobedient to the old covenant. Well, then, chapter 3, verse 1, you see, here Paul anticipates the question. I don't know if you've ever got to hear the American evangelist Billy Graham, but he came to Sydney in 1968, and I heard all his sermons. And the thing I, two things I remember about Billy Graham's preaching, he would hold up the Bible, a big black Bible, and he'd say, the Bible says... 
But the other thing that struck me about Billy Graham's preaching is that he would dialogue with you. You didn't have to interrupt. He would say, but Billy, you may ask. And that's the very question you were asking. You didn't have to ask it, but he's anticipating it and he's answering it. Now, Paul says that throughout Romans. But look at chapter 3, verse 1. Then do I hear some of you say, what advantage is there in being a Jew? And he responds in verse 2, well, there's many. And he tells us only one. He's many and he's going to risk the the 10 advantages in being a Jew. But he only gives you one. He says, look at what he says in verse 2. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. You were the very people for whom God went beyond revelation in the created order and he gave you a spoken written word. That's the great advantage of being a Jew. But he goes on and anticipates the next question. What if some were unfaithful? What if some broke covenant with God? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? You see, okay, the Jew might say, yeah, well, we have been faithless to the covenant, but God's got to be faithful to us. And Paul quotes David, who comes under the judgment of God, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you judge. You see, God's faithfulness is seen when he blesses obedience and when he curses disobedience. So God is seen as faithful both in blessing and in cursing. But if our unrighteousness, see how perverse they are, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Well, we're unrighteous, (coughs) but he continues righteous. <coughs> well, it's good for us to be unrighteous. No, Paul says that is nonsense. And he says at the end, their condemnation is just. Well, now he comes, friends, and I want you to notice from verse 9 to verse 20 that he simply lets Scripture speak. Look at verse 10. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So did you notice that? No one, no one, none, all, all, none. And you say say to someone at church, well, yes, but not me. No one. No one. He's quoting Psalms, Ecclesiastes and Isaiah. No one, not one. And he says, I'll prove that to you. Take six parts of your body and I'll prove it from six bodily parts. Number one, verse 13, your throat. Number two, your tongue. Number three, your lip. Number four, your mouth. Now, what are you noticing about this? It's all here, right? It's all here. The tongue, the lip, the mouth, the throat. Jesus said, want to know what's on the heart? Listen to what they say. Now, Paul is saying that the reality that none of us are righteous and all of us have become worthless is clear in in when you listen to our speech. The throat is an open grave, unclean. The tongue is deceptive, don't trust it. The lip is poisonous. The mouth is full of curse and bitterness. You see that again and again. I don't know what it's like here. But in Australia, you hear it. And I think it's most shocking when you hear elderly people with a filthy tongue. And you hear young ladies with a filthy tongue. That's when it's most confronting. When we arrived in Wales, the the home on this trip, we came to a place called Prestaton and we came to the railway station. It was late at night and there were two constables who were the only people at the railway station. And they got up and they said, these two policemen, are you all right? We said, yes, we're waiting for our lift to pick us up. 
And at that point, four or five young people, teenagers, walked past us. And the big burly constable listened to what they were saying and said, lads, language. Lads, language. In other words, there's a standard and you're not meeting the standard. Now, I don't think in Australia a policeman would have the gall to say that because the standards don't exist. Now, here you see that Paul is saying that the way we speak is the indicator of what's on our heart. And notice the next one, verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they don't know. And here's the sixth one. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The eye is the entry to the soul. And there's no reverence for God there. And that is the basic issue. And that takes you back to Psalm 36 where Paul says exactly the same thing. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There is no sense of sin. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Remember John Wesley in one of his diaries said, after my meeting tonight, a lady, a well-to-do lady, came up and said to me, oh, Mr Wesley, pray for me, for I am a sinful woman. I said, indeed you are, madam, and indeed I shall. She said, how dare you speak to me like that? (laughs) We can mouth it, can't we? You can go tomorrow morning and you can mouth the general confession. And if I just come up to you and say, you know, everything you said there is true, will you be offended? Oh, you see, we're so blind to our own sinfulness. But this is us. This is humanity in its natural state. And you will not appreciate the greatness of the gospel until you come to terms with this. Now, let's move on. Verse 19. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law is good, as Paul will say later, because the law helps define sin and helps you know, have a knowledge of what sinful activity is. But you will not be justified by the law. The Ten Commandments are no good to you to bring you into relationship with God. That is Paul's point again and again and again. You go to the doctor, you've got an infection. The doctor takes your temperature. He puts a thermometer in your mouth. And his prescription, he says, you've got a very bad infection. Take the thermometer home. Take your temperature three times a day and come back in a week. And I say to the doctor, but that's going to tell me I've got a problem. That's not going to solve the problem. And that is precisely what the law is. The law is the thermometer. The law tells me I've got a problem. But the law doesn't solve the problem because in our denomination, I know in Australia, there are people who think that if we just did the Ten Commandments, that would solve the problem. We can't do them. The law is no help in bringing us into relationship with God. But now, look at this, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets point to it. Now, this is the passage, the paragraph, that Leon Morris, the very conservative commentator, says this is perhaps the most significant paragraph of writing ever written. And my appetite has been whetted because I can see whatever category I'm in, I've got no hope before the righteous God. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, for there is no distinction. Now notice that. Verse 22 has faith and belief twice. This righteousness comes through faith directed to Jesus Christ, to all who believe in him. 
For there is no distinction. Here is one verse that sums up everything that Paul has said. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're short. Even when we're good, we're short. We're the arrow falling short of God's standard. But listen to this verse. And we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. All of a sudden with Martin Luther I see that righteousness is not God's requirement but his provision. And Luther said before he understood that he was asked did he love God? No, he hated God. Ask a Muslim, do you love Allah? I respect Allah. I worship Allah. I reverence him. I fear him. Do you love him? And very rarely do you hear someone say, I love him. Because he requires. The God and Father, the Lord Jesus, provides. This is the great truth. Look at what he's saying. And are justified. That is declared in the right. It's a legal term. It's not related to the way I feel. The judge on the bench says, you are in the right. I declare that you are righteous. And notice that this is by grace. It's contrary to, look, I'm guilty. But he's saying I'm right. It's contrary to my deserving and it comes to me as a gift. I do not earn it. I don't get this as an award. And it's based on the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So there's another very well-known word, to buy something out of bondage. That's what it means to redeem. Christ lived the perfect life, laid down that life in death in order to buy us out of bondage. Now notice what he's saying. We are justified by grace on the basis of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus who gave his perfect life on the cross. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation. It means that Jesus' death absorbs the just wrath of God that I deserved so that I do not need to absorb it. And this is to be received again by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. Now notice that, friends, because this is the demonstration of justice. Chapter 5 is the demonstration of love. Right, so let's look at Claude. So it's like this, if we can put it like this. This is where we are, us. This is Jesus. And this is God the Father. All right, now, what does the death of Jesus mean to us? It is a redemptive death. He redeems. He buys us back from bondage. What does the death of Jesus mean to God the Father? He propitiates him. That is, he absorbs the wrath. God was in Christ, absorbing his own wrath. See, it's a very Christian idea that Jesus is the sacrifice in which God absorbs his own wrath. And therefore... God justifies us. He declares that we are in the right. Now, just have a look at that. All the arrows that can point away from Jesus. So the work of Jesus is absolutely central. All the arrows that can point to us. So we are the recipients by grace of great blessing. Now, notice, what does the death of Jesus mean to God the Father? It propitiates his wrath. What is the human aspect of the death of Jesus? 
we are redeemed or brought back from bondage. Therefore, God is right to declare that we are in the right with him. He's not a bad judge who says, I know you're guilty, but I'm just going to treat you as right. No, because his justice has been satisfied by the propitiatory, redemptive death of his son. And on that basis, he declares that we are in the right with him. Now, notice that Paul goes on very briefly now in verse 27 and says, Then what becomes of our boasting? Can you boast that you're in right relationship with God? No, he says, it is excluded. By what, by what kind of law? Uh, by a law of works? No, that would not exclude boasting. Because if you could be in the right by making a contribution of keeping the Ten Commandments, you'd have something to boast about, wouldn't you? But he says it's not by a law of boasting. But he says, no, but it is by the law of faith. Now, it is only, therefore, faith which excludes boasting. And if faith, notice, is your contribution, then you can boast about that. But faith must be the gift of God, which is, of course, what Paul says in Ephesians. So, therefore, it is a gracious gift of God that God gives to me the gift of faith. The very faith which links me to Jesus, on which I'm justified, is the faith which God gives to me. See, at every point, therefore, I'm a beneficiary of great blessing. And so Paul says, there is nothing here on which we boast, for God is a universal God and he puts all people right with himself. Then, verse 31, do we overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, the the law is upheld. See, Jesus keeps the law perfectly. Jesus absorbs God's wrath against broken law. So at the cross, God treats Jesus the way I deserve to be treated. And now God treats me and you the way Jesus deserves to be treated. That's a great truth. So I'm in right relationship with God because I have a perfect propitiatory sacrifice, because I have been perfectly redeemed on the basis of what Jesus has done. And this God, who will never change his mind, declares that I am in the right with him. And there's nothing to boast of. Now Paul goes on, he anticipates the next question. Where you say, well, this is new. I've never heard this before. No, he says, come on, this is not new. Look at, look at the experience of Abraham, verse 2 and 3. For if Abraham was justified by works, he had nothing to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. This is the experience of Abraham. And if you want more evidence, look at verse 6. David, your own great king, your great patriarch and your great king, David. David wrote, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. David saw this day and he's writing about the blessed man who sins but doesn't pay the penalty for his sin. Someone else does. Is this blessing, verse 9, only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? And follow Paul's argument. He's saying, well, let me ask you this question. When Abraham was declared to be righteous before God, was he circumcised or was he uncircumcised? Genesis 15, he was declared in the right with God. But Genesis 17, he was circumcised 14 years later. So that when Abraham was set right with God, he was uncircumcised. 
So you therefore can't argue that circumcision brought Abraham into right relationship with God because he was uncircumcised. In that state, he was declared right with God. That's Paul's argument. And the same applies to the law as well. So he comes to the conclusion of what this is all about in terms of Abraham. Verse 18, in hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As it had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is what, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It, was, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespass and raised for our justification. What is the point? Abraham had a promise. You're going to be the father of a great nation through your barren wife, Sarah, nearly 100 years of age. Now, just imagine that because we, oh, yes, 100 years of age. Here I am. I'm 67. Here's my son, 35, and here is his son who may just be born. So his son, my grandson, his son... Um, my father, it's his great-grandson. So there's my grandson, my son, there's me, my father. And we're all sitting down for Christmas dinner and our son Ben says to me, before you say grace, Dad, we've got an announcement to make that we're having a baby. I say, well, that's very good, Ben. I'll just give you that opportunity. So before I say grace, I say, now everyone, Ben's got an announcement to make and he's about to tell us that he and his wife are having another baby. But before he does, my father taps the glass and says, great-grandma and I have got an announcement to make. We're having another baby. Now, you see, that is incredible, isn't it? We just say, oh, she's 100 years old. He's 100 years old. She's been barren all these years. But here, great-grandparents, you imagine in your own family, if they're still around, they're making the announcement that they're going to have another child. Abram believed that God could bring life from the withered womb of his wife. And look at what Paul says, but that was counted to him, was not written for his sake alone, verse 23, but verse 24, it was written for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe. Now, what do we believe? We don't believe that our aged wife is going to give birth to a child. That's not the promise to us. Rather, we believe that God raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Abraham believed a promise of God. We believe the promise of God that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. He, was, he came to death and was delivered to death for our sin, but he was raised up as the guarantee and the warranty of our justification. How do you know, therefore, that God has declared that you are in the right on the basis of the propitiatory, redemptive death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus is God's guarantee that you are in the right with him. Therefore, now notice here is the first great therefore of Romans, chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, 
We have peace with God. Now notice again, we have not been justified by law. I am not justified by religiosity. Therefore, we have been justified by faith and three things follow. First, we know that God is at peace with us. Second, verse 2, we have access into grace in which we stand, an unconditional relationship, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And it's incredible, isn't it? God is not sulking with you. When you've had a bad day, God is not sulking with you. When you've had a good day, God is happy with you, and he's happy with you when you've had a bad day. Why? Because God relates to me through Jesus. And he determines to see me as clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. And can it be, we've sung it already, no condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine, alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. God sees you as clothed in the righteousness of his son. So this is a great truth. Well, that's an hour's up and we've got to the beginning of chapter 5. I think that's fairly fairly good. We're making progress. Um, And you will be doing in your Bible study groups uh, Romans chapter 3. So let's pray as we conclude this session. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the great truths which are humbling to us, which are exclusive, and which are based in the historic resurrection of our Lord Jesus. Thank you that we are right with you by grace, through faith, because of him. And we give you thanks and thank you for hearing this prayer because we come trusting in his merits alone. Amen.